Welcome to St Anthony's Looks at the World, the podcast from St Anthony's College in Oxford, where we talk to fellows and alumni about their work and research, and how it sheds lights on the great issues of our time. My name is Martin Rush, I'm an MPhil in Modern Middle Eastern Studies from the class of 2015, and today I'm joined by Professor Calypso Nicolaidis, Professor of International Politics, for a fascinating discussion across myth, international cooperation, Brexit and hope for the future. Remember to check our social media and our emails for future podcasts, and remember our previous two episodes with Professor Simakai Jagudu and Professor Thomas Hale. Now, though, over to Professor Calypso Nicolaidis. The first place to start is by asking you, how are you doing and uh, how are you coping with the lockdown at the moment? Well, thank you, Martin, and it's a pleasure to speak with you and uh, the St. Anthony's community of alumni and students um, in these strange times. Um, and you asked me, how, thank you for asking me how I'm doing. You know, I, I'm struck by the contrast, really, between, um, uh, for me at least, and I think for many of my friends, a sense of, you know, harmony and calm in this Oxford spring, where we're all from our homes um, uh, enjoying an amazing weather and as, at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm with two grown-up kids, and I know that's not the case for many of my friends and colleagues, but they're super cool. Um, my students are thankfully doing okay. Uh, we're doing tutorials together. So in at, at this private level, we're fine. And yet, at the same time, being plugged in to the, really, the, the horror of this world, the, the just trying to imagine the grieving families and also all the those that I think of as the wretched of of coronavirus, you know, the refugees, the people who live in very precarious states, um, political prisoners in, in, in prisons who are greatly endangered, and we could go on. Um, so it's this kind of strange contrast that puts you in a kind of moral, ethical, psychological limbo. And there's another contrast, Martin, that I'm also feeling kind of vividly. And, and that's a contrast that connects to our political world, but also about ourselves, which is a contrast between two temporalities, you know, that on one hand, somehow time seems to have collapsed. We live day to day, we follow the numbers, um, uh, on our screens um, and, and, and the latest news about technology and, 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 um, and medicine and all the rest of it. And that's day to day. And yet at the very same time, time has stretched and we are thinking and speaking more than ever about the world after, whether it's about our worst nightmares or our greatest desire, either one of them being fulfilled. But we're having this kind of global conversation. So these two times are, are kind of living side by side, as it were. And I find this both um, demanding, fascinating, unsettling in mm. many different ways. Well, I think we can all relate to that. I think we can also all relate to that phrase you used, uh, psychological limbo. I think that's a really good phrase. And I think it, um, one of the things that I think your work does, your recent work, because you've written about um, coronavirus recently and trying to sort of um, tell the story using perhaps mythic structures and archetypes. And one of the things I saw recently was a great article you wrote in um, uh, on the on the politics uh, department blog, actually, but also for open democracy, 
where you sort of drew a parallel between our current uh, situation and the um, er Eruvim. Um, so could you explain to our listeners what is a, an, an Eruv and what you mean by the Eruvian age? Well, an, an Eruv is a fascinating um, uh, approach um, developed over the last 2,000 years by the Jewish community to try to, um, to actually transform what was public space into a kind of imaginary private space, because as we all know, on Shabbat, in the, according to Jewish law, you cannot um, carry things, whether it's a baby or a dish. So initially, they wanted to create little community in their courtyards, and the rabbis declares, well, these courtyards you can do. Imagine it's private. And then with time, entire blocks and even cities became designated as an Eru, thanks to a, a fascinating trick about space, which was to, to, to put wires and strings uh, attached to poles uh, to create, uh, to say, well, this is the space that we're now calling and imagining as private, therefore you can carry things, and especially important for women, you know, on Shabbat. And, and so, um, my and, and, and when I lived in New York uh, in 2012-13 at NYU, I had the luck to meet and discuss this with uh, Rabbi Adam Mintz, who was writing a book about the Eruv, and who, um, who brought me into the secret, because in a way, it's both a public story and, and a secretive um, thing, as it were, because if you don't know that the strings are there in the sky of your cities, you don't see them. And so I suddenly came to me that we are at a moment where we, we are reinventing our public space. We're reimagining our public space um, in a way as a space where we have to learn to care for each other. And in the air roof, you, you were supposed to all care and contribute dishes and uh, to, the, to, the, to the common good. So this is a space um, that today we are trying to reconfigure so that it so that interactions are possible, but with limitations and constraints. And of course, today we are creating all sorts of limitations to our use of public space, what we can and cannot do, how far we can go, and all the rest of it. And so perhaps at this moment in time, the conversation between our secular yearning for reinventing our space and the wisdom that came from religious traditions like Judaism can help us think about the moment after too, when indeed in the com common space, um, we will have to think of the other differently. And it's not about the vertical authority telling us what to do. It's about mutuality. It mm -hmm. will be about wearing a mask because it helps others as well as myself. Um, and I think this will be a new way to think about togetherness where the Eruv and the Eruvian's age um, will be upon us. Yeah, it's a brilliant article, and I really recommend our listeners um, look it up, because it's a great way to think about uh, about our situation. And um, we'll get on to, we're going to talk later, actually, about your book on um, Brexit. But that, that, that book uses myths to help us explain sort of events and, and processes. And so why do you think uh, myths are important for us now and do you think there are any others that might be relevant to um, the coronavirus? Well the reason why I, I invoked biblical and Greek myth in my book um, Exodus Reckoning Sacrifice 
is is to some extent because I felt that the language, the the social science or mere political language of interest and our positions didn't do justice to the fact that, you know, these are grand narrative and Brexit or this philosophy of separation that we're trying to reinvent, but also politics in general can um, move to a terrain where invocation of these old archetypes help us somehow lower our pulse uh, because of the, the great you know, uh, intensity of tragedy. And so we, we listen to these stories and we think, ah, oh, well, that, that makes, put a different light on the story and maybe gives us a bit of ironic distance, as it were. Um, and indeed, um, in the book, I invoke all sorts of uh, Greek characters, starting with, of course, Ulysses, um, in part because Ulysses, um, one of the many bits of insights that he gives us is that somehow the guy was, you know, fundamentally ambivalent. And he based, he both wanted to stay home with his dear Penelope and become a glorious worker, uh, sorry, warrior. Mm. And in that sense, I, um, I start my book, but also a lot of what I'm thinking these days when I look at the political world, I started with a kind of praise for ambivalence. And um, and I and I also believe that today, if only we could kind of tap into our ambivalence, that might help us. But let me add, Martin, that um, out of the many examples I could give you, um, these days with the with the coronavirus, I am reminded um, very intensely of Oedipus, Oedipus King, who um, you know because of a prophecy, of course, somehow a city, Thebes, which is engulfed by plague, um, is looking for somebody that will incarnate all, all of what is wrong. And they don't know yet who it's going to be. And it turns out to be Oedipus, their king, who 20 years before killed his dad and married his mom, the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the story of Oedipus, it is in a way one story of quintessential scapegoating uh, where society needs to need to target and channel their um, their violence, their conflict onto one person or one group. And I do fear that today what we're going to see increasingly and we're going to see the day after is societies looking for scapegoat, whether it's Chinese-looking people or foreigners and refugees and um, or whoever it is, we will have to protect ourselves and become very self-reflective about how scapegoats are made and targeted and how the ancient world tried to rid itself of scapegoating mm. through many other stories. And that's also a piece of wisdom from, from mythology. So it seems to me that we have two different uh, possibilities or maybe a combination of the two where the the, the Erevima example suggests, as you said, sort of mutuality and uh, cooperation, whereas scapegoating would imply division and uh, and sort of discord. So, I mean, do you have any sort of uh, prophecy on, on which ones are more likely or would it depend on the society and what's come before? 
I would certainly not pretend to be like Cassandra, <laughs> prophetizing the truth, but not being listened to. Um, but I do always like to tell my students, you know, at St. Anthony's, whenever you're asked a question about the future, and after you've, you've duly said that there's nothing harder to predict than the future, uh, please always answer, it depends. So <laughs> if you've been my students, you answer, it depends. And yeah. you ask, hmm, what does it depend on? And of course, I, you know, many around us these days say, well, it will depend on leadership, you know, in Britain, it will depend, or in Europe, or in the world, in the West, in global multilateralism, whether our leaders will be capable of engineering, you know, a new spirit of cooperation, because we all know that viruses don't respect borders, and we can only tackle them together and all of this. But you know what, in the end, my trust and my hope, at least, goes in citizens, the multitude, the many of us, you know, to me, it depends whether we do somehow what everybody seems to be saying or hoping that that we, this moment will um, change our sensitivity or, or, or sharpen them because we do have them, they're revealed, they're not created, but somehow in this fast life, we don't always attend to, to these intuitions that that it is our our families and neighbors and co-citizens that make our world now if we can live by that you know i'm a i'm a fervent believer in in radical democracy and using new technologies to reinvent decentered democracy nationally in europe at every level in our cities um and uh, call me an idealist but i'm hoping that out of this wretched times of coronavirus we can relearn uh, the, the value of our democracies and channel technologies and channel our politics in a way that really empowers citizens. Because, you know, I hope that leaders and societies are learning today that to tackle the virus, you can come up with edicts by the state. And of course, you do need public services and hospital and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, the solution relies on citizen empowerment, whether you are there to in your behavior with neighbors, in tracing if you have the virus, in caring for others, and all of that. Um, this is the solution is with us. Uh, and would you say, kind of looking around the world, that um, particular systems or governments have been better placed to deal with a crisis like this than others, or? Well, for one, Martin, we are speaking now mid-May 2020, and yeah. um, everybody knows that the science means that all of our societies have a long, long way to go because we'll end up affecting, if we don't have a vaccine soon enough, you know, a, a big proportion of our societies. And it will take a long time to be able to compare, mm. contrast and compare our reactions and it will but we will also realize that indeed um you know all politics are local and we can't simply say oh virus have no borders you know in fact that 
there are borders that are borders, societal borders, jurisdictional borders, political borders. So we will, our states, but our regions too, you know, from Wales to Scotland, our cities will be like little laboratories. And that will be fascinating for one for social scientists to study. Um, and I know that we're already into a big debate as to whether democracies or authoritarian states um, are better at responding to such challenges. Um, and indeed, there is something to be said for just being able to tell citizens what to do. But I have very little doubt that we will learn that democracy, if we, you take impacts in the whole, that democracies um, are best suited. And of course, there are many different ways of being democracies. You know, France, Italy and Spain are states that have been very authoritarian in their response. Um, Nordics and others have been less so for various reasons, but there is a political culture, the Jacobin state that tells you what to do. And at the end of the day, citizens get tired and citizens resent not being empowered to do the right thing. So my bet is on the democratic response and the democratic value added. But Martin, we can speak about this again in a year's time. Of course, I would love to. Um, so uh, it, in terms of, we talked about idealism. Um, in terms of the ideal of uh, European uh, unity and cooperation, I mean, what has been the level, in your view, of European cooperation in this crisis? Well, you know, everybody was extremely disappointed in the first moments of this crisis um, when the response was, you know, uh, frankly humiliating as someone who like me and so many others who are, you know, idealistically pro-European, when you saw that one of the first responses between member states was an export ban on critical, you know, PPE, etc. That was really very bad. And moreover, Brussels took quite a while to respond uh, in various ways. Uh, that being said, um, I think in the last, you know, since the end of March, we have seen the EU respond much faster than in previous crises. I think we can say that the EU has learned from its previous failures. Um, ironically, of course, the first fundamental response was to lift restrictions on state, to say, hey, you know, in, if you're in the Eurozone, uh, well, these constraints on your budgets don't apply anymore. Okay, that's um, fair enough. But, you know, we will need to learn from this because we have long, for long said that the Eurozone should deal with, you know, fundamental investments in society in different ways. Um, so that was the first response. And then, of course, we've now seen the EU organized in, in two different, um, in, in at least three different super important dimensions. One is obviously sanitary, where we all know the EU doesn't have competences directly. It can coordinate between states. Um, and in that sense, little by little, coordination has happened. C common procurement of equipment, um, exchange of capacity, etc. Um, and indeed, I think that will certainly open the door for greater thinking about cooperation 
in health and medical domain, including in research. We will see more of that. But I think it's also right and proper that member states, you know, do their thing individually because they're the ones who control their welfare state, including health. So that's one area. But the second, of course, that is the most important from an EU viewpoint is economic. And after all, 1,000 billion euros have been kind of uh, put on the table through various conduits, whether it's the euro budget, uh, whether it's the European Investment Bank, whether it's the European monetary system, and indeed additional questions about bonds, which we could discuss. And here the glass is half empty as full. There, you, some will argue that this was already money attributed. Others will say, no, no, this is quite a bazooka. It's a big conversation. But let's say that they're, they're, the EU is getting its act together. And, and let me add a third very important dimension, which is the protection of or the rule of law and our political freedom. You know, we are seeing around the EU states, like Poland and Hungary, maybe others, which where there's a temptation to use the virus to, to, to actually tighten the screws of control over society. And the EU has made statements, but is considering going beyond in terms of at least monitoring and watching, <laughs> this may be too mild, but what is happening on that front. And I think this is also a very, very important dimension. So these are the three areas to watch. It's too early to make a diagnosis, but I wouldn't say the, uh, the EU is absent anymore. It's there and it will be there more in the next few weeks and months. Now, to return um, to your to your book on Brexit, um, Exodus, Reckoning, Sacrifice, um, and um, I highly recommend people go out and buy it. And also, you you very kindly wrote a um, article for the Antonian newsletter in 2017, which people can see on our on our website. Um, I've got to ask this: How has the um, coronavirus, do you think, impacted the Brexit negotiations? Well, you know, in the book, I. Um I, I I try to be fair to all sides and I try to indeed make the point that we have to listen to each other's stories and that um, fundamentally there is nothing wrong with the fact that all citizens, every one of us, um, is always conflicted between two fundamental instincts. One is to um, cooperate with neighbors and others, as we were talking about with the virus, and the other is to be in control. I always say that my adolescent daughter, you know, she slams the door of her bedroom because she wants to take back control, and the next minute she cooperates with the family and, and helps cook dinner. And that's true for all of us, and this is what we've seen. Uh, and, and so, you know, with, in the book, I try to tell stories around these, these instincts and um, and, and, and today, of course, um, everybody can see, and there's, this is not rocket science, that there is no very little bandwidth to deal with Brexit um, when, we ha when governments and, and agencies and people and, and all of us have to deal with, with in, a, in a way, a much bigger thing. And yet Brexit is there to stay, you know, for the next many years and decades when even when the virus will be you know in our distant memories and i think we all you know know that and the eu has been hoping that and some of us have been hoping that um this perspective this lengthening of 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 of, of, of what's at stake really 
um, would have brought the UK government to kind of somehow rehabilitate the value of cooperation. And indeed, there was a huge um, disappointment in Brussels when when the UK failed to join, you know, a common procurement scre- uh, scheme for PPE, thinking, how can ideology override, you know, the urge to save more lives? Um, but of course, on the UK side, what you hear from at least some circles in the government as well, you know, we, we're still thinking about Brexit. We still want to be in control. We still believe that um, even in dealing with a virus, um, there is advantages in being nimble and flexible um, rather than um, trying to coordinate with the EU. Uh, but we still want to to collaborate with our friends and partners. You know? So I think we need to hear both sides of the story. Um, sadly, I say sadly because you know I believe that we you know we do we do need a very ambitious relationship in the future. Sadly, I don't think in the next few months we will see much convergence because indeed of this lack of bandwidth. But I am hoping that by the fall, somehow uh, the parties will come to their senses, will adopt some sort of um, overall framework structured to for the future and say, hey, you know, it's the end of the extension period. Yes, but here is a holding pattern and we will, you know, enter this new phase in the spirit of collaboration across the board. So, you know, let's take uh, Boris Johnson at his word when he keeps on talking about an ambitious relationship for the future. Um, we're not any old third country, we in Britain. Uh, we will be a very unique animal in the international system called a former EU member state. We'll be probably the only one. Now let's build a relationship that is, you know, reciprocal, where each side respects the other, um, where the EU doesn't try to impose its regulation or all of its level playing field to Britain. Um, And I think if that's the case, and if Britain makes the effort of considering the importance of the EU ecosystem in its regulatory approach, all this is feasible among people who are not, you know, blinded by dogma from one side or, or the other. And I hope, still call me idealist, but I hope that this moment of virus will bring the parties to a place where they understand the importance of the long-term sustainable, you know, cooperation. Well, I think that's a very hopeful uh, note to end on. And I think that has been the the theme. We've covered an awful lot of ground. But before we go, um, is there any words you would have for our alumni listening in? Anything you'd like to say to the St. Anthony's alumni across the world? Well, uh, indeed, absolutely. I'd like to say that, you know, here in Oxford, uh, in the university and in the college, we're, as you can imagine, extremely busy in trying to think about the world after and how we're going to reinvent education um, in a post-COVID-19 world where there will be a model of mix between physical presence and remote learning um, and where hopefully Oxford will continue to have the comparative advantage of its tutorial system and yet at the same time still be able to bring young 
students to our dreaming spires. So it's all to be kind of reinvented. And we, I, and all of us, I very much hope that you can be part of this conversation um, about the future of our educational system at St. Anthony's and in the bigger, more global world. Professor Nicolaitis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Martin. It was great to be joined by Professor Nicolaitis. I can highly recommend her book and her recent articles, which I will post in the description. Remember to send any feedback or comments to alumni.office at sant.ox.ac.uk and look out for our future podcasts. I hope you're well, take care and all the very best.